You'll never believe this. A pastor and a rabbi walk into a podcast to discuss how faith and tradition should inspire but not limit us. Yeah, we talk about stand-up comedy, surfing, religion, family issues, Doritos, hemorrhoids, the bears, and absolutely nothing at all. You'll have so much fun, you'll never believe we're actually religious leaders. Hey everyone, Ralph here. Welcome to You'll Never Believe This. Today it's our honor to introduce you to my good friend Rich Curtis and talk about his book, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, The Field Guide to Rewrite Your Stories, Create Happiness, and Set Yourself Free. You'll love Rich's insight from the world of neuroscience, positive psychology, and behavioral psychology, but also just the wit and banter that we have with one another, um, and just his ability to give no BS, but help really provide value to your life um, for wherever you're at. So hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Rich Curtis. I'm Rich Curtis, and you'll never believe this. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. Excited to be here today. I'm Ralph Super. And I'm Jamie Leiter, also known as Chaim. And this is You'll Never Believe This. Today, we have a special guest, a good friend, author of a new book, Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Uh, he's helped a lot of people in his uh, business and now helping a lot of people through his work as an author. I want to welcome Rich Curtis. Rich, thanks so much for being here. Would you start off and uh, just tell everybody a bit about how you got into writing a book? Why, why were you inspired to write this? Uh, yeah, right on. Th thanks for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Um, yeah, if you told me 10 years ago that I was going to write a self-help book, I, I would have absolutely laughed at you. <laughs> that's, not, that's not the arc uh, of my life uh, that, that I saw happening. But um, in 2013, about 41 days before the birth of my first son, uh, my mom suddenly passed away. It was really unexpected. Um, we thought she had a hernia. Turned out she had a lot of cancer um, and we ended up in the ER still thinking she was having hernia complications. And then about 14 hours later, she passed away. And I came away from that experience uh, really altered in some ways I didn't anticipate. I was really going through the depths of grief and depression, uh, a lot of anger and frustration. And it seems odd to say, but I didn't know it. I thought I was, I knew I wasn't right, but I thought I was relatively okay. I was dealing with this pretty good. And some things um, became really apparent to me uh, in sort of a moment of revelation. I think some people have their revelations, you know, uh, taking ayahuasca and sitting on the slopes of the Andes, cuddling a yak and staring up at the stars. And it's this that's amazing me. epiphany. Yep. Yep. Um, yaks. That's mine. Yeah. <laughs> but I had my epiphany uh, circling a Costco parking lot, screaming at the top of my lungs into the phone, having an argument with my brother, unbeknownst to me being chased by a man in a very small golf cart that couldn't keep up with my tundra and was just circling me because apparently somebody had uh, reported this insane man that just keeps driving in circles around Costco. Uh, but in this fight with my brother, he, uh, I blurted out all of a sudden, look, I'm failing Anne. That's my wife. I'm failing you. And we failed mom. We just stood there and watched her die. We did nothing. We just watched her die. She fought for us every day of her life and we didn't fight for her. And when I, you know, when I blurted that out, I thought, whoa, where did that come from? This is about two years after my mom's death. I had no idea that that story was inside me. I had no idea to the depths of, um, you know, grief and, and um, guilt I was feeling about that day. And when I blurted it out, I realized, man, I've got all these stories inside me that I don't know, that I've never taken the time to say out loud or write down or evaluate. And when I really thought about that story, 
as a side note, I stopped when I said that. So I stopped and the golf cart guy nearly hit me. And so I'm in the middle of this, not speaking to my brother, sort of epiphany, this guy from Costco is knocking on my window, trying to get my attention. I completely ignored him for a couple of minutes because I was, I was stunned to the extent that there was this really negative um, story inside me that was affecting my life uh, that dramatically. So I sat down and I asked myself some important questions. One was, is this true? Did I really not fight for my mom? Um, and, and even if it's true, is this story serving me? Is this doing anything positive in my life? Uh, and the answer to both those questions was no. So I set about um, trying to rewrite that story. Can I do this? Can I change my perception of this day in a way that is um, equally valid but true? So I went back through that day and I looked at the facts. And the facts were my mom had a DNR, do not resuscitate order, which required us to sit on our hands and respect her wishes to, to die her way which was in direct conflict. My background is as a raft guide and a mountain guide. And so when people are hurting or dying, we tend to do things and we're trained to just keep doing things until we can't do things anymore. And then we either pass out or hand these to hand the person off to someone who knows more and can do more than us. Mm -hmm. So to sit there and do nothing was so counter to my personal programming. I think it hit me maybe even more than it did um, my brother. So I had sort of some compounding, you know, bad stories there, right? That sort of guide savior complex, nobody dies on my watch thing was also playing in the background. Yeah, let me ask you, because I, this is something as I was reading the first couple chapters, and, and that's the story you're telling is kind of expounded. Um, why do you think you were, um, you had that level of consciousness to question if that story is true? Like, I think a lot of people go through life, and they, they just enter into they hear you know, I failed my wife, my mom, and uh, my brother, and they just go into deeper. They just go into, um, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to live. They don't have that sense of there's a better way, or there's a, there's a different way, or there's something I can do to get out of this. Why do you think, what do you think uh, triggered that, that you had that, you know, advanced level of consciousness about this? <laughs> well, well, I appreciate you being the first and possibly only person to accuse me of having an advanced level of consciousness. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm he tried up. that with me once. I wouldn't let him get away with it. Yeah. Other, other than your haircut, I think you're pretty astute to what, what's going on in the world. <laughs> I'm going to update my IG bio right now. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, th I think it was twofold. One, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And I, I was suffering to an extent um, that was uh, untenable. I was... I'd gained 30 pounds in two years. I was waking up in the morning just exhausted and feeling terrible and thinking, and actually having this thought, the first time in my life I ever had this thought, is this all there is? Is this what I'm going to do for the rest of my life? I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to feed my family. I'm going to feel like this. Is this really all there is? And I, for whatever reason, thankfully, I didn't uh, get to the point of contemplating suicide. That doesn't seem to be some, a place I go, so I'm glad. I'm blessed that that wasn't you know, something I entertained, and I have enough sort of distant family history of addiction to be scared enough of that, that I didn't, I didn't succumb to that. But I think men deal with grief in general more poorly than, than women. We tend to isolate and we do tend to sort of circle the drain and get into these depths of um, addiction and depression. Um, and luckily I sidestepped that, but I was suffering enough that something had to change. And so I asked myself, how, how do I change this? If this is what's making me suffer, how do I change this? And that, that led to the, the question, is this really true? And then um, the other thing is sort of uh, my background in the outdoor industry, you develop an ethos of there's always a solution, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're rafting, when you're in the middle of backcountry, you know, with a group backpacking or climbing a mountain, things go wrong. 
you, you don't have the option to quit. You don't have the option to sort of throw up your hands and be like, well, that, that's a bummer. We're, I guess we're just host. You can't do that. There's a bunch of people's lives who depend on you, you know, being creative and constantly pushing for a solution. So I think, I think my basic nature from a decade of, of guiding people in the wilderness led me to look for a solution. And the only solution that I could find to a bad story was a better story. So then I dove into the neuroscience of it mm-hmm. to see if, um, if, if science could help me learn how to do this. And it turns out there's a lot of really powerful neuroscience to back um, changing your narrative, um, solidly changing your perspective and uh, creating an environment where you can achieve happiness. Happiness is um, a lot simpler in some ways formulaic than we think of it as. Uh, but you can't even start to um, execute the plan to happiness if you have all these really bad stories holding you back. Once you realize one of your stories isn't true and you take the time to rewrite that one, then then the world opens up. You can apply this filter to sort of every part of your life that isn't working. And that's what I did over a period of two years of sort of talking to neuroscientists and reading books on happiness and uh, sort of diving into the canon of happiness. Mm -hmm. Before before we jump into the the actual neuroscience, which is very interesting. And I do want to talk about that uh, a bit. I I just was, if we could stay with the beginning of the book, because I found it to be so vivid. And I really felt like I was there with you. It was, it was really amazingly written. And I just, it was like, it was emotional for me because thank goodness I have not uh, lost a parent as of yet. If I could just ask you personal question, uh, like how long has it been and how do you, how do you feel it now? Do you feel that you miss your mother as much as you did the day that you lost her, or do you feel like it has gotten less and you have gotten uh, sort of better at dealing with it? Uh, yeah, I think no and yes. So I think one of the, we have some problems in the way we address grief, especially in the Western world. I'd be interested to hear, uh, I think Judaism sometimes runs a little closer to Eastern contemplative religions than maybe Protestantism. So it'd be interesting if there's a different Jewish perspective on uh, on death and grief, but we tend to look at it in the West as a linear process, right? So mm-hmm. I, I work my way linearly through the seven steps of grief. And, and even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and uh, I forget the name of the man who wrote the book with her, but they even say it's, it's not a linear process. And so um, today, I miss my mom heartachingly as much as I did the moment of her death. Um, and I can bring that up on active recall anytime I need it. Um, what has changed is it doesn't, uh, it doesn't come for me when I don't want it to as much as it did in the beginning. So I tell people grief is a demon you have to make a home for, you know, so we, we often, we, we tend to battle these things. We have this sort of battle mentality of, especially as men, I think we've, we've taken a hit and we battle our way through and now I'm fixed. We're good. And that, that's not really how this works. You can't outrun this. You can't outlast this. So you have to find a place in you uh, to make a home for, for that demon of grief where it's there when you need it because there is value in grief. You, you need that. You need to tap into that at times, uh, but you have to put it in a place where it doesn't have the power to bring you to your knees uh, without your permission. So in the early days, you know, I'd have to drop my kid into the swing, my newborn baby into the swing and slump down behind the counter because the grief came for me without my permission. And it would just drop me to my knees and, you know, and, and sobbing. And, and now it's at the point where I can, I can do a whole podcast with you most likely without crying, you know, uh, you know, and, and talk, I can talk if about my need mom. to, it's okay. <laughs> We're here for you. <laughs> um, so that I, I think, uh, anybody who's lost, somebody will tell you they will never miss that person left. Grief. One of my favorite quotes about grief is, you know, grief is, is uh, love with nowhere left to go. Mm-hmm. You have all this love and caring kindness for a person. You don't have a receptacle for it. 
you're in the flesh. Um, and I think uh, maybe people who are rooted in a, in a metaphysical or spiritual tradition maybe have some different pathways for connecting with that. Maybe some that I don't uh, have access to. But for me, um, writing the book and finding meaning out of my mom's death and being able to take the things my mom taught me, even what she taught me in the last moment of her death and turn around and share that with people and hope to help other people suffer less than I did and hope to have other people lead a more fulfilling, meaningful life. Um, that attaching that meaning to that grief allows me to, to keep it in that place where it doesn't come from me where I don't want it to. And I can find something positive about it. And, and that's not, uh, if, if you said, you know, burn the book today and chuck it out, you can have your mom back done. Right. It's not, it's, it's not an equal, it's not, it's not an equal trade. Uh, sure. but it, but it helps. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, no, for it's like sure. some, some, some goodness out of the wreckage. I love where you say, um, you talk about how meaning shapes your reality. Uh, and, and in the book you say, not only do we compile and filter all the information that makes up our reality, but we also assign meaning to it. Like it's not just a, a list of details or in binary in front of us, but you know, we compile that, that mom died, that it was brutal and you suddenly assign this meaning and you had to come to this, 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 um, process where you've realized that there's, um, that the meaning to it on your life isn't detrimental, depressive, you know, uh, completely devastating. Like you still have a full life to live, a family to take care of, a, a business that you work through, um, that kind of stuff. I love that part of the book. Yeah, and I think that, again, I think men are really good at, I, I think we've, we've got a model for stoicism. Stoicism is great. If, if you study the Stoics, there's, there's a lot to be garnered in terms of emotional resilience out of Stoicism. But where stoicism can go wrong, especially in men, is it becomes compartmentalism. So you, you, you compartmentalize the grief. So even at the height of my depression or the depth of my depression, however you want to phrase that, um, even in that moment, I was, you know, selling a lot of houses a year. I was a, a pretty good dad, as, as good of a dad as I know how to be. Uh, I don't think I was a very good husband. I think I, think I got a lot of grace from my wife in, in that period, you know, in, in terms of just being grumpy and irritable and hard to deal with. But um, I think most people didn't know. Most people, in fact, the number one reaction from friends who have read the book is, oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry I wasn't there for you doing that. I'm sorry I didn't reach out. I'm sorry I didn't do more. Um, and that wasn't their fault. I was self-isolating you know, out of my depression. And what came from that for me is realizing that everybody is suffering. Everybody around you has taken a hit. Everybody around mm -hmm. you is going through something. So that person who's being you know, grumpy or uh, rude or dismissive of you, you have no idea what just happened in their life or what they're going through. If someone's chest is rising and falling, I guarantee you they're suffering. And and people don't uh, don't like to connect with that word. In fact, I got I had that word in the subtitle and I got a lot of pushback on the word suffering in the sub yeah. to the point where I finally deleted it from the subtitle of the book. But the, the truth is um, we have all made this tacit agreement that life's hard uh, and life is suffering. And so we just think of it as life, not suffering. And, and if you take the time to identify the places where you're hurting and, and take the time to work on those stories and correct that, you can get to a point where you, don't, where, where you don't feel that suffering. And once you sort of step free from that for a moment, you'll see that clearly for what it is uh, for suffering. And so um, to some degree, going through this made me far more empathetic um, to, to the people around me and wanting to create uh, essentially the point of the book is to create a world in which people don't suffer every day. They don't suffer daily. So you can take a hit, but you have the tools you need to, to bounce back. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I think there's also like a, like we sort of settle that this is the, like you said, you settled, like this is the way it's going to be. And then there becomes this numbness that 
um, you know, you can't even address, we can't even address, but, you know, other people don't recognize. Um, and I think, you know, that's where people react to suffering because they think someone's worse than them, or they think this is the new norm of life now. And really they don't, they don't have the tools to find a better way through. And that's why I love in the book, you're giving some very practical, usable, you know, there's education, there's neuroscience, but there's also these tools that help um, get through the story. So I'd love to hear more about some of those tools. You, so you had this story you said about your mother's death and you failed her and didn't try. What are some of the tools that you learned and used on your own story to um, kind of re reform that story? Yeah. So what it turned into is in, in the book, um, the sort of the four step story evolution process, which is funny. What, what probably won't make errors as we were discussing before this, I was joking about how the self-help industry is all about sort of four easy steps and your life will be perfect. Um, and I think to some degree, the self-help industry is complicit in, uh, people's, uh, sort of renaming and keeping their problems, staying stuck. Right. Mm -hmm. So they, they tell you, here's four easy steps. And if you do these, you'll be perfect like me, except that guy's not perfect. He's suffering too, number one. Uh, and number two, no, no life change is easy. So I try to make a distinction in the book that these things are simple. It's not rocket scientists. I'm not the smartest guy you'll ever meet, uh, but it takes work. So um, emotional resilience and consistent lifelong happiness is available to people who are willing to do the work, but it is work. Um, so what I discovered is that story affects us in the deepest um, parts of our brain and the parts of our brain that are responsible for, you know, biological um, survival, like the, like the medulla. So there's this, um, you know, brilliant researcher, Mary Helen Imerdino Yang, um, who does uh, neuroscience research into education. And she has discovered that if you tell someone an inspiring story while they're on, in an fMRI machine, uh, the part of their brain that lights up is the medulla. Now there's some other, there's uh, the midbrain also, um, lights up in a couple other areas that are responsible for your gut function. But the most illuminating part was that the part that's lighting up is uh, the medulla. It's the oldest part of your brain. Uh, it's the part that's responsible for keeping your heart beating, for keeping your blood pressure up, for keeping you breathing when you're sleeping. If you take a big enough hit to this part of the brain, they can't even keep you on, you know, on life support. They can't keep you alive. So this is, this is the core of your biological survival. When you hear an inspiring story, that part lights up on the fMRI, which means a couple of things. It's getting additional blood flow and it's being electrically stimulated to turn on, which means an inspiring story changes you at the neural level. Um, and that's, if you just pause on that, when you hear an inspiring story, you are being altered at the neural level in the survival center of your brain. And that's how powerful story is on us. And I think you both probably in your, in your day jobs, you know, use a lot of story and a lot of allegory. And that's, that's why it works because you're, you're reaching right into the, the depths of, uh, of the biological survival center of the brain. And nobody knows where the soul might be stored, but certainly I think it's, uh, it, it, it's inarguable that the biological survival center is, is something that's, you know, crucial and innate to who we are. So our stories, our narrative are directly linked to our biology. And so when you think about it, that when depression starts affecting you physically, that that's why you are, when you have a bad story or a negative story, you are harming yourself at the very, you know, biological survival point in your brain. And so, um, the story evolution process started with the idea that if I feed that part of the brain better story and better information, I'm going to do better, not just emotionally, but, but physically and across the board. And so it starts with getting the, the story um, out of you. So you have, to, you have to take the time to write it down. So if you think about it, you, it's like you're getting in the car in the morning and you turn it on, the GPS comes on, it starts taking you somewhere and you just go. 
Mm-hmm. You don't take the time to see where it's taking you. Because you we don't. all have Teslas that drive themselves, right? <laughs> that's, that's right. Until they, until they don't, until they turn into so, a fireball on the side I wanna, of the highway. I just want to throw a story in here. I don't know if you guys ever heard this. There was a woman who was supposed to, she was an elderly woman, I think in like Denmark, who was supposed to pick up a friend. She put on ways. She drove 900 miles <laughs> until she realized something was wrong. And I was like, so some people do just sort of take off. I mean, <laughs> not, not most of us. Thank God. Continue. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. But, but it's like that. We have all these stories. You have a story about uh, every part of your life, who you are as a father, who you are as a religious leader, who you are as a comedian, as a surfer, who you are as a husband, who you are as an athlete. And these stories direct your whole life. And you've probably never taken the time to write down, you know, a single one of them. And so the first step of the story evolution process is just write it down. Not, not the version that I would tell you on a podcast, not the version you would you know, tell people at a party, but the, the late night whiskey in your hand, uh, I'm hurting version, the real, the real truth. You write that out. And then I encourage people, the next step is to say it out loud. And I actually encourage them to videotape themselves. I did this recently with my seven-year-old. He was really struggling with distance learning and missing his friends and being really sad about that. And this is the kid who loves school, loves learning. And he said, dad, I hate school. And he just, you could see his whole body. He was so sad about that because he doesn't really hate school. That's actually incongruous with who he is as a person, but he's hating this version of school. He's hating this pandemic version of the school. And I videotaped him telling that story. And I played it back for him. I said, how, how, how do you think you feel? Look at yourself. And he says, that's horrible. I don't want to feel like that. And I took him through the story evolution process. And then we recorded him at the end telling his new story, which is, is something along the lines of, I love school. I love to learn. And distance learning sucks, but it's, uh, it's still a chance to see my friends. It's still a chance to learn. So he didn't deny the truth of it. Distance learning sucks. Nobody's saying it doesn't. It, it was true, but it was positive. And I re-recorded him telling that story. And the videos, I'm, I won't put videos of my kids on the internet uh, like that. So I'm not going to show that video, unfortunately. But he was just bright and excited and ready to go. And we had so few problems with getting him to go to distance learning after that. So uh, the second step is to say it out loud. So you hear it and record yourself because you will physically see on your face the points in the story that don't work for you that hurt. You'll Mm. see a twitch, a tinge. You'll see yourself get sad. You'll see yourself cringe even, right? Like if your story is, you know, I'm I'm a terrible athlete, right? Well, would you want to stand up at a cocktail party and tell that that story, right? What would your face look like if you're like, hey, everybody, I'm a terrible athlete or I'm a horrible father or I I, I kick puppies on the weekends, right? Like whatever, whatever this terrible version of the story is, you'll see it on your face. It won't, it it won't look and feel good. So you write it down to get it physically out of yourself. You say it out loud so you can feel it, so you can get the emotion of it. Uh, And then you do the process of rewriting it step-by-step, each word, each sentence, it's an iterative process and you rewrite it. But this isn't using positivity and positive psychology to batter away, you know, bad feelings. Uh, it has to be true. It still has to be true. So with the example of my mom's uh, death, I went back through and, and, and said, well, what really happened that day? Well, I brought in the DNR and I asked her to rescind it and she wouldn't. I tell that story in the book and I handed it over to the, to the hospital, even though I knew what that meant. Uh, we, we got, my mom was a, a Catholic her whole life. We got a priest out to do uh, we used to call it the sacrament of the sick and dying. And I don't know what they call it. now they, they, they have a slightly more friendly and euphemistic term for it, but basically uh, it's sort of the final sacrament uh, before you, you pass away uh, in the final countdown. <laughs> that's, yeah. what they, that's what they call it. Actually. I was just say, 
Nick, yeah, as the wrong numbers. guy, you're asking the wrong guy over here. I got nothing for you on the whole sacrament thing, but keep going. Keep going. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, no. That yeah. The Jews are completely devoid of ceremony. I hear. <laughs> oh, is that no, no? No, no. We've got lots of that. We've got lots of that. I just, you know, we use different terminology. It's like a guilt. Whatever. Go ahead. Yeah. You take. It. <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. Shame. I can't believe you died and left me alone. <laughs> My, only the worst. <laughs> My only mother. My only mother. My only mother leaving me here to toil. <laughs> uh, yeah so uh and then you know my dad couldn't get in the bed with her so i got the hospital to drop the bed rail the oxygen mask was freaking her out and i said what's this doing they said well it'll keep her alive 10 minutes longer i said get that thing off her face you know so she could be more calm and so i went back and rewrote the story of that day with all the things i actually did to help my mom be comfortable but die her way to respect her right to die her way and that that was the final version of the story was i fought for my mom in every way i could while respecting her right to die her way now, that is equally true to the other story. Both of those stories are true. One of them was making my life miserable, and one of them set me free. And, and that's, that's when the power of this process sort of became clear to me. And that, that's that sort of iterative process of rewriting that story, looking for equally, positive, equally true but positive bits of information to fill that story in with. And once you've rewritten so, it, oh, say, yeah, what's that, James? No, 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 good, good. Oh, once what's you've you? rewritten it, the, the most important and the hardest work is to... Uh, basically embed that story back in your self-conscious. You have this story you've been carrying your whole life that's on instant recall. That's the story that comes up, right? When you think of yourself as a dad, boom, that's a story that comes up. And so if you want this new story to work, then you have to implant it in your self-conscious. And that takes a lot of work. In my experience, uh, you know, 21 to 30 days minimum, 60 to 90 days better of putting it up where you can read it twice a day, telling it to yourself when you wake up, telling it to yourself when you go to bed, and getting out and getting in front of as many of your friends as possible and sharing that story out loud as part of your living oral tradition with these people, such that now when I get triggered for the story of my mom, it's that story that I fought for my mom in every way I could while respecting her right to die her way that comes up. That other one doesn't come up. It only comes up for the purposes of discussing the book. Uh, and that took a lot of work. So that's, that's, the, that's the key. That's where I'm, I'm sort of unequivocal about the work you have to do. But if you're willing to put in that work, the, the freedom and the lightness that comes on the other side of doing that uh, is well, well worth it. So what I was going to say is when I was reading about this whole rewriting, um, I was actually reminded of uh, the movie Big Fish. I don't know if you yeah, guys great book. Great, yeah. great movie yeah. too. So, but what I liked about that is that when I first saw the movie, you know, it, it has that, I don't want to uh, trigger, uh, what's not trigger warning. That's not the one I'm looking for. The one where you, you don't want to tell anybody that the ending, whatever. We're, we're oh, not going to tell, tell you. Spoiler. Spo- there's the one. Spoiler <laughs> warning. Trigger warning. I'm, I'm really, I'm very sensitive to people. You, you should have said trigger warning before the shame <laughs> comment. <laughs> that's what you should have said trigger warning. I should have said, this is Jamie Leiter, trigger warning. Something's yeah. coming. Just be ready for it. But the but but in the movie Big Fish, I love the fact that by the end of the movie, the, the son realizes that the, the father's stories are not really, it doesn't matter. The truth of the story doesn't matter, right? Yeah. The truth of the story, and, and you said it a little differently. I like that you said, try and infuse it with true things. But if you go to my, the book that I study the most, the Torah, right? People always ask me, is this real? Did this happen? You know, is this, and I always say to them, that's not the point. You're missing the whole point of what these texts are about. These texts are about trying to tell you how to live your life. It's not, did that actually happen? It's not, this isn't a history book. This isn't a science book. This is a book that tells you our story as a Jewish people. And this is the book that tells you who you're supposed to be, or maybe even sometimes not who you're not supposed to be. Right. And those <laughs> things are not about truths. They're about more, they're about what how you see yourself how you want the world to be and that that's really what i think you're also trying to work at here is is making a help a person see who they're supposed to be 
Yeah, and see the different iterations of truth. That's an interesting interaction you're having with the spiritual text there. And, and you have you have so much freeboard to work in the world when you accept it as that, like whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. I, I have a good friend who is a um, he, uh, very close to Catholic. He's Eastern Orthodox, but he has a doctoral degree in theology. And we have a long 20-year history of getting in hours long religious debates. Once we even got locked into the new, uh, you know, uh, he used to live in New York in Washington Heights and we went to, to ground zero and we got locked in one of the new towers they were building. They had one building up and you could tour it. We got locked in there because we were sitting there staring at the, the blast site and, and having a, a religious discussion. <laughs> we, we got trapped in there, but he says a similar thing. You know, if, if I question him about this or that detail, it's well, if you're questioning the, the, the details, you're, you're missing the point. The point is how this informs your life and how you can live this out. And if how you can live this out, if what you're going to get at the end of this is positive, then the text is, is positive for you. And, and that is, that's, that's what this guy Isaac Litsky calls your own personal virtual reality. We're all living in our own personal virtual reality um, in the sense that we are compiling a truth through our subjective senses, right? We, we only have our five senses to work with. And none of them are direct. We think of like sight as a direct projection of the world, but, but it's not. Your emotions and your past experiences affect even your sight. So as I see Ralph and Jamie on the Zoom meeting here, I'm not seeing them empirically. I'm not seeing a direct mirrored reflection of who they are. I have all these experiences with, with Ralph, you know, uh, as a human being I've known for a while. I have experiences, cultural experiences that I, you know, have tacked on to Jamie emotionally from other friends, you know, who are Jews, other rabbis I've known. And all of that gets filtered in and gives me my brain a projection of, of who you are. And if, if we can wrap our minds around that, if, if we can get that, um, and, and we can believe that the input we're getting isn't empirically true, but filtered through our subjective emotional state, then all of us, it doesn't become a post-truth thing. It's not that truth doesn't exist. I say in the book, if I, if I smack you over the head with a chair, we're both going to agree that this chair exists. But it's only a chair because you say it is, I say it is, and we need a common way to label it and talk about it. Mm. But we are in control of the emotion we attach to the chair, of the definition we attach to the chair, and of how that interacts in our lives. So if we can get to that point, you have so much freedom to build stories that actually serve you and take you where you want to go. What do you think the hardest part of of getting through the layers of, of bullshit about our stories is? Um, how do you crack that? Cause you know, I can say you've got that bad story. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, I do therapy with folks. It's, it's, I, I call myself the Jiffy lube of therapy, um, <laughs> you know, where, and, and I, you know, I, I'll do three sessions and I'll say, you need to go to a, a, a real professional, but I can tell what their story is within the first session, but they're telling me a very masked sheltered, layer of that how what's the what's the hardest part and how do you break through to like that deeper story because you were hiding it for for two years and as a good friend of yours I had no clue you know we hung out we had drinks we did birthdays with our kids and all well uh, yeah and and no idea I, I wouldn't have thought twice uh, that you had depression at the time so how did you get how do you get through that what are the ways to to help others you know for people listening you know they may think oh my life's awful or oh I'm just sad but there's something else right yeah, I think, well, there's a lot of versions of that sort of how do I help myself? How do I help others? Or how do I help someone in a professional sense? So in a professional sense, you have first, you have a hill to climb of uh, you building rapport. I think in that's maybe harder in my job as a, as a success coach where people are coming to me 
you know, through a referral, but they don't have a personal relationship yet, or maybe they saw my online content, but I, I first have to establish that I'm, I'm a real human being that, that cares about you. I have to establish that everything you say here is confidential and, and build some trust before they'll even get below that surface level and, and tell me what's really bothering them. Um, I think that's probably easier for you as the leader of a spiritual community. They probably have sort of a, a baked in trust with you when they come in the door. So that's, you're starting off, uh, you and Jamie probably starting off at an even stronger position. Um, but, but really it's questions. The problem, the problem with saying something, <laughs> and I've failed at this, try to, you know, you have your wife go through something where she's, uh, you could tell she's got a bad story and said, boy, you're just having a bad story about this. See what happens, right? <laughs> see, see what the results are. And it's not, it's not very much different with a, a client or a friend. So instead of sort of attacking the story head on, um, you know, I believe the quality of our lives are directly proportional to the, the quality of the questions we ask and the stories we tell ourselves and the questions have to come before the story. So when people are telling you these bad stories and you can see it plain as day as a third party observer that, that they're really torturing themselves over something that's not really true. You start to ask them those questions. Well, is, is that really true? And they'll probably say yes, you know, and then, well, is that the only version of the story that could be true? Right. Mm. What else happened or what other parts, pieces of information do you have to apply to that story? Are there more positive pieces of information that, that you can bring to the table and you start to get them to think through it in a different way. Cause the problem we're fighting is our brains are 80% on autopilot, right? Your brain is the number one resource hog organ that you have, right? It takes up the most energy in your body. So mm. in order to survive and not have to basically take in as much food as an elephant, we have to run on autopilot, right? So we have the brains 80% on autopilot and we compile and create all these filters for the world to make that autopilot work. And so if you think of uh, HTML as the way you program a website, then uh, stories are the way you program your brain. That's the way you access the filter database and adjust the filters. And so, you know, you have to get people to the point where they can start to step aside of those filters and they can reactivate and turn the brain back on. And questions do that. If you just, if you can get someone just for one second to question whether that story is true, to question whether they're missing something, or ask them, is that story serving you? Is it, is it making you feel good? Is it taking you where you want to go? Right. And th- asking those kind of powerful questions starts to get people to turn the brain back on, take it out of autopilot mode so that they can sort of get cracking. And then you have to begin to help them pattern their world for the positive so they can even find those better bits. So anthropologically speaking, you know, if you go back to you know, the caveman days, there were 15 other hominids running around, you know, foraging and, and trying to make more hominids. And we're the ones that survived. And we didn't survive because we were the best at procreation. We survived because we were the best at fear. So we programmed a brain that was really good at ducking the saber toothed tiger, right? Like, uh, why, why do you, why do you vomit if you see somebody else vomit, right? It's not because it's gross. It's because on the ancestral tundra, that guy would vomit. So he was lighter and he could run. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to outrun the saber tooth tiger. He just has to outrun you. So if he's going to vomit and run, Oh, I better vomit and run. Something's dangerous. And our brains still work that exact same way, but without an immediate daily threat to life. Right. So we don't, you, most of us, Although Jamie, perhaps in some places you travel, you, you you have to maybe scan the horizon more than we do in our daily lives. But without an immediate threat to life, um, people's brains are still going to scan for threats. And instead of threats, it becomes negative bits of information. And so you have an anthropological preset to compile the worst possible stories for yourself from the most negative bits of information. And that person sitting in your chair needing help They've been doing that their whole lives, uh, not because they're bad or because they suck at life, but because that's what they're programmed to do. That's their basic biology. And the only way to, 
you know, usurp that biology and move beyond that, um, you know, is to sort of apply a more metaphysical, you know, filter to it of, you know, even if this is true, even if the story you just told me is 100% true, is it taking you where where you want to go? Is it is it doing good things in your life? Work them through that series of questions to get them to the point where if you just get them to question, then you're in. Once they start questioning whether that's actually the only version of the truth that there is, you can start to to do the work. You talked a little bit in the book about media culture and trying to sort of block out media culture. Um, and and I, I often go to, when it comes to these sorts of issues of depression and, and, and mental illness, if you will, um, I think of movies like uh, The Silver Linings Playbook and Home and the show Homeland. And, and I wonder if, and I might just be setting you up to say what I want to say, but I'll try not to just set it up. But um, do, do you feel that these things are doing a total disservice to people? You know, that, that they show these people who go through quote unquote, a process where it takes little to no work in a, you know, an hour and a half and all of a sudden they're cured. I always feel frustrated. I don't What, what do you think, Rich? What, what's your take on this? Yeah. I, well, I think, you know, it's like, uh, people say every overnight success was 10 years in the making, <laughs> you know? Right. So, so I think it, it I mean, I think it's part of the problem is in the way we consume things. It's one of the, it's one of the things that's powerful about a podcast. So we can talk long enough. We can talk long enough that you can knock me off my shtick, right? Like everybody's got their shtick. They've got what they're going to say. And then you blow through that in 15 or 20 minutes. And then you're going to get somebody getting real and, and giving some real information. And we can't sort of do that in a movie format. So, you know, I think, I, I think the, to the extent that we uh, sort of just repeat these same tropes, um, it, it does have sort of a, a pernicious and deleterious effect on people uh, because we get to the point where you start to feel, why am I not happier? I think I, I think I opened the book with that question. You ever feel like, why is everybody else happier than me? They're not. Nobody else is happier than you. Everybody else is struggling. Everybody else is suffering. But the movies make it feel like, you, you know, there's nothing, you know, no problem. You can't wrap up in a half an hour, hour episode, right? Uh, and then, you know, social media, we're looking at everybody's, you know, best day highlight reel. And we don't, we don't build meaningful human connection in our perfection. I think that's you know, why I said sometimes the self-help industry is complicit in sort of making people just feel worse because, man, I read your book and my life still isn't as great as yours. Well, that's because my life isn't as great as I told you it was, right? <laughs> so, um, and so I think uh, we really build human connection you know, through our, our beautiful fallibility, through showing people that we're, we're in the fight with you. I am not, like, like if you ask my dad, like, you know, dad, hey, you know, uh, are you happy? And he'd say, well, I'm not walking around, you know, giggling like the village idiot all day, huh? Right. That's, that's how we'd respond. <laughs> and, and I think to some degree, our social media lives have created a sense that if you're not living your best day, if your every moment isn't a perfect Instagram picture, then you're not happy. But that's not what real resilient happiness is. Life isn't a sort of up into the left linear progression from worst to best, right? Life, life you take hits, you get knocked down and you recover, right? And so um, you have to be sort of uh, willing to create a definition of happiness for yourself that allows for you to have bad days and, and take some hits. I, th I think um, the ancient Greeks called it eudaimonia. Aristotle called it eudaimonia, which is if you read all the happiness books, that's the sort of most agreed upon definition, which translates into human flourishing, right? That's pretty good. Everybody wants to flourish. That, that feels good. Um, but it, for me, it falls flat because it doesn't acknowledge the work. It doesn't, and it doesn't acknowledge the pathway to get there. I think I was, I was telling Ralph the other day, um, Doc Paskowitz has this quote that I use in the book, which is health is more than the mere absence of disease. It's the presence of a superior state of well-being, a pizzazz, a vitality that has to be worked for each and every day of your life 
You cannot get it in a bottle or from Dr. Phil. It's got to be gotten through diet and exercise and rest and recreation and attitudes of mind working all together every day of your life. Now, he's articulating not just what it is, but how you get it. And if you just change a couple of words and say happiness is more than the mere absence of sadness and depression, and you run the rest of that quote, you get pretty much the pathway I'm, I'm laying out in the book in the core four habits of how you create the, the right neurochemical environment in your brain for happiness. If I can throw out a doc story, because he might get a kick out of it. I don't, did you, do, you have, do you have any, did you ever like meet him or anything? Or is he listening? Is that, he, he's, he's actually <laughs> he's, listening. Oh know, my gosh, the, that's amazing. Doc, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks so much. We're great fans. Uh, must be incredibly difficult, but glad you're listening. <laughs> he's crossing the, the heavens to, to be with us today. Yes. But um, I went, I actually went to the surf camp with the guys and I, and I, when I was in like a teenager and one of my favorite stories about the Pasquit surf camp in Southern California. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. And I, and and what happened was was interesting, is that I mean you you know that what what I sort of struggled with in the book was that that he was one of these people who you were talking about people who you know living your life like there's no tomorrow. And in a way, he kind of lived his life like there was no tomorrow. Right? He <laughs> Hardcore, picked his yeah. kids up, right? And he picked his kids up and he put them in a caravan and they surfed their lives away, basically. And thank God they're all doing decently now and it had some effects on them. But, but there was this one day where, I, I mean, I learned a couple lessons from him. One lesson I really learned was he, um, there was a guy surfing uh, uh, and, had, and he was riding a big longboard. So, you know, those things tend to have a lot of weight on them. They have a big sharp fin on the back. And when you're not really knowledgeable on how to surf, you you start a, you get you catch a wave, the nose goes under, it's called purling, right? And then the board shoots up out the back and you come up in the same area. And if you don't have your hands over your head, which is what they taught us, you can get clocked in the head. And this guy got a fin right on the top of his head and he needed about nine stitches on the top of his head. And they brought him right to Doc and Doc was in the caravan. That's where he was every day, right on the beach on the caravan. And they said, hey, Doc, you know, um, this guy needs some stitches. Doc stitched him up, no problem. And the guy says, okay, what do I owe you? And he said, eh, bring me a watermelon tomorrow. That, <laughs> that's, that was sort of Doc in, in a nutshell. He didn't care about those sorts of things, right? He didn't, it wasn't for him, you know, I need to be, what's going to make me happy and give me something. I need money. Do I need this? Do I need that? But he knew that there were things in his life and there were people in his life which could sort of elevate him to, to some level of happiness. Yeah. The interesting part that Rich was just talking about um, for me is that uh, we all have this assumption that happiness just kind of comes to us um, and it stays. And we, I think we all know one of those giggling idiots who are like, <laughs> how do you wake up this way? Like what, like there's always one in everyone's life that breaks the norm. Right. I'm and a, just drives you nuts. I, was I, Ralph? Was I, was that you that may have been it. You've lost it over the years, though. But, <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm not on um, my game. I think we both we both probably were when we were in college because we would <laughs> we would, we would go into those meetings where somebody had a gavel and we'd be dancing to some ridiculous uh, like Bingo Boys <laughs> song or something. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. But um, until the dark filter of life, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. dimmed exactly. your giggling. Did you just call your children the dark filter of life? Oh, zing! <laughs> we got you. Subtext there. <laughs> anyway. Um, but happiness needs to be worked for, right? Like th there are, there are uh, exercises you can do. There are practices you can engage with. There are, you know, reframing your story. And I think that's, you know, like we said, we were saying in the beginning, some people just settle because they're like, well, I'm not a happy person. I'm not, I'm not a person who has a good story. You know, I think same thing happens with um, marriage and raising our kids, which we're all trying our best for. Like they're all 
a challenge and, and people just sort of settle with, oh, maybe my wife and I just will be angry with each other our whole lives. Or maybe my kids are just going to hate me those forever and ever when really you got to work at it. You got to go learn some stuff. You got to practice and exercise and apologize and really come to the sense that there's more to it than just, you know, settling for one bad story. That's why I love that you include um, so much of your book. You know, you're using this one story about your mother's death throughout the whole book and rewriting your story, but there's all these other stories to help to help the readers um, really see themselves. So like, oh, I, my mom didn't die or I don't have that story, but man, you've got a bunch of other stories that help us see, you know, how others have had to work for and really protect their own joy and happiness. I love that part of it. Um, what other stories from the book might be worth talking about a bit? Yeah, well, you know, one of the more powerful stories in the book is um, about the couple that uh, was in the Grand Chancellor Hotel during the Christchurch earthquake. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I came to them through a circuitous, through sort of a Doc Paskowitz uh, uh, route in that I have this fantasy of um, you know, spending a year on the road traveling the United States with my kids um, and, and just traveling and seeing everything, um, taking them out of school and, and doing that at least once before they're out of my care to, to give them pers- you know, some perspective. And I, I got a wild idea of doing that by converting an old school bus, which I've since come to realize is a, an awful idea. And we're not going to be doing it that way. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but uh, so I, I came across those people because they, they did that. Um, and, and their story goes, they were on the 25th floor of the uh, Grand Chancellor Hotel in Christchurch, New Zealand, when mm-hmm. the earthquake hit. And this earthquake on the Richter scale was relatively minor, like a 6.4. So for those of us, you know, who grew up in the Bay Area, we lived through the 7.1. You're like, ah, 6.4. But... Uh, <laughs> But what they experienced was so, so much more violent than what we experienced because that earthquake was in a really shallow fault close to the surface and they were on liquefiable soils. So the soil moves like water, not like rock in an earthquake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, fissures in the street would, would break and, and basically liquid soil would shoot out in rivers. So they, they're up there and uh, the earthquake hits and uh, they start jumping across the room. Literally, they dive under a table. They're holding onto the legs and they're bouncing across the room, just hang on to this table as stuff rains down on their heads. They finally pry their way out the door into the hallway. It's completely dark and they're choking on all the uh, sort of concrete dust. They start to descend, you know, the, the stairwell and they come up with some other people. They end up with about 10 or 15 people together. And then they look over the edge on one floor and the stairs are gone. There's no more stairs. They, they didn't know it, but one, one pillar of the building had crumpled and that side of the staircase was gone. So they get out on the 20, I think on the I don't know, 21st floor. So they'd gone four or five floors down and, and uh, that floor was so caked in dust. Nobody could breathe. So they, everybody rushed to the windows, blast out the windows to get the air moving out so they could start to breathe. And then they sat there and there was now a total of 15 of them. And they sat there for about four hours experiencing the aftershocks. Uh, each of the aftershocks on the Richter scale were big enough to be their own seismic event, you know, and they were watching the buildings of Christchurch just drop around them. The, you know, they, you could hear the crack, they said, of the earthquake of the aftershock coming. You'd feel the rumble, then it would hit, and then you'd see a building just go. And so they just sat there wondering which, which one's going to take us. You know, the next, the next crack we hear could be the end of our lives. Yeah. And Andy, uh, the husband, he, he had a, a very real moment of thinking, you know, if this is the end of my life, have I lived my life the way I want to? And the answer for him was no, you know, mm-hmm. he had had that sort of um, ascendant career, you know, track. He was the youngest VP in, in a uh, travel industry uh, company. He was actually the next day about to move to Australia to take over a new job as a VP of this company. Um, and he'd been just sort of living that traditional story that had nothing to do with his values um, and, and how he wanted to live. 
So they eventually, uh, a huge aftershock hit and him and his wife looked at each other and said, look, I'd rather die in the stairwell than here. We're going, we're going we're gonna to get out of here. And they rallied the group and half the group decided to stay, half the group decided to go down. Uh, there were some construction workers there. They grabbed a hose, they broke out the windows, they repelled out the window using the fire hose, broke into the floor below to pry the door hinges off from the outside because on the inside of the stairwell, the fire doors were locked. And then they would ascend one side of the rickety staircase, come in through the door of the construction workers that opened, circle the hallway to get back to the side of the staircase that was still there and go down another floor. And they're descending these rickety staircases where people are falling and they're, they're almost falling off. And they finally get to about the 14th floor. They can get out onto this parking garage roof and then they got lowered down by a crane. Mm-hmm. Um, they, what came out of this is four hours of thinking the next moment you were going to die and then literally watching the entire city evacuate and leave you behind. At one point, they tied together sheets and hung them out the window just to try to show people they were still there because their, their building, unbeknownst to them, had been marked as too dangerous so for rescue. So they were effort. on their own. Yeah. They ended up with PTSD. Um, and then, then they had their first Earth. child and, and the wife had a real bad case of postpartum. And they eventually decided that they needed to rewrite their story around um, currency, that they were working their whole life away just to pay rent and pay for things while other people watched their kids and that everything they were doing was so that they could pay for things that were giving them no value in their life. And so the story they rewrote was that time would become their new currency. And, and all of a sudden your entire world changes if time's your currency. So if you think, oh, I, I got to buy that, uh, that, you know, that skateboard that's 300 bucks, well, now I got to be away from my family for 12 hours to have that skateboard. Is it worth it? And the answer is overwhelmingly almost always no. So they gave away everything they owned, moved into a school bus and spent two years sort of driving around the country. And the postscript to this is that, okay, they, they rewrote that whole story around time. They spent two years just being parents, being with their family full time and living exactly how they wanted to live. But they built this huge YouTube following and everybody had this mirror into their life. And now the moments of their life became about getting the shot for YouTube and not being present with their kids. And they realized it. And because they had developed that muscle, that story you know, writing muscle, they were able to look at that again and very quickly say, well, that's not what we set out to do. They came out one day, nuked the YouTube channel, deleted all the videos, sold the bus, moved to Australia to be completely obscure and have nobody know where they are and went on to a new adventure with their family. So wow. they, these people, it's not just, you know, I think it's pervasive in our culture right now, the van life thing, like just, if you just chuck it all and have a more adventurous life, your life will be better. Well, no, you'll just be living in a van with all the same problems and bad stories you had living in your house, right? Maybe, so the, maybe more problems if you live in a van, just going to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So the, the point isn't to chuck it all. The point is to fix the stories and then be clear headed about whether you want to live in a van or live in your house. And these people are a really great example of that. Um, but one thing you said, Ralph, when people before this whole thing, you were talking about people, you know, saying, well, I'm just I'm just not that happy guy. Well, they're right. They're not. Because 50 percent of our overall happiness comes from our genetic preset. You're, some of us are born as Eeyore. Some of us are born as Pollyanna and there's nothing we can do about it. Mm. That's just how you are. So some you're really annoying, giggling idiot, buddy. He just got gifted a really rosy outlook, you know, by the genetic lottery. And that's awesome. Are you saying, uh, is, does, that, does that just, is it how often and how much those uh, happy hormones, endorphins, serotonin, oxytocin, that kind of stuff, does that have to do with that? Or is it just the brain? 
I think it's just the brain in this case. Um, I, I don't, it'd be interesting. I have not read, and so I should I should be clear that I don't know the answer to that. I've not read any neuroscience research to show we'll put whether- that in the show notes so everyone knows that you don't know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's important to be clear about what you're an expert in and what you're not. Um, so I, I don't have research to show that those people, that they're sort of, um, you know, uh, oxytocin, you know, or um, dopamine, you know, slot machines are on overdrive. Mm-hmm. I think it has more to do with how their brain is wired. So the, the concept of neuroplasticity is that you know, neurons that fire together wire together. And what that means is if, if you take and put effort into patterning your world for the positive, when you get a positive stimuli, you'll see more of your brain actually light up and work on that positive stimuli. And if you're doing the reverse, which our brain is doing naturally for the negative, then you have more of your brain lighting up and working on negative stimuli than positive. And so I think those people, I would guess, but this is a guess, I'd like to hear a a neuroscientist's response to this. Um, But I would guess that those people just from birth had a greater level of gray matter wired together for positive stimuli. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, you can't adjust that. So you're, you're, if you're Eeyore, you're Eeyore. And if you're Pollyanna, you're Pollyanna. And what we tend to work on is our external circumstances for happiness. And it turns out they only affect us 10%. So your external circumstances, whether you're fat or slim, whether you're um, healthy or unhealthy, whether you're rich or poor, whether you got the job you wanted, all that stuff, um, that only contributes to your happiness 10%. So we're stuck with 50%. Everything we spend our lives trying to work on only gives us 10%. So what's the other 40% that, that nobody's really working on? Well, that's where all the work happens. The other 40% is your choices, your conscious choices and your attitudes. When Doc says, you know, attitudes of mind, that's what the 40% is. So, you know, the pessimists say, well, shoot, I'm 50%. I can't get any happier. Well, well no, you could do something with your 10% and you're, you've got 40% control over your happiness by just working on your attitudes um, and your behaviors. So we talked about attitudes, your stories, and then your behaviors do the rest. And that's the, the sort of the core four behaviors I talk about in the book, getting eight hours of sleep a night, doing 30 to 45 minutes of cardiovascular exercise every day, getting at least 10 minutes of mindfulness or meditation in, and a daily gratitude practice. Those four things together, once you've rewritten your stories, create the right neurochemical environment in your brain. Um, Can you say those four back again, just so that people who are listening have a chance to, uh, to, to imprint them in their brains? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first one is getting eight hours of sleep a night, which I think all three of us on this call are fathers. So that one's out the window. Uh, but you, you do the best you can. Um, and right, the reason we got three left, we could do, we could do the other three. <laughs> come yeah, on, exactly. Come on. Uh, but the reason these are important, I think everybody has heard, you know, people are like, God, don't talk to me about gratitude again. Right. Like we, we have all these things that sort of culturally people tell us we should do that are added to our to-do list. So I got to brush my teeth for two minutes a day. I, I got to eat, you know, 20 ounces of fiber. And now I got to be grateful for every silly thing that happens in my life. And people start to feel sort of battered and abused by us adding things to their health to-do list without the knowledge of, of why this works. So if your mm-hmm. brain is naturally preset to pattern for the negative, th- these things help you overcome that. So sleep is really important because after one night of missed sleep, it disconnects your um, amygdala from your prefrontal cortex. And, and why that's important is your amygdala is like your, your like, uh, angry you know, buddy you know, in his Ed Hardy t-shirt who's had one too many Jaeger bombs at the bar and he's just ready to punch somebody out all the time. That's your amygdala, right? <laughs> and then you know, your prefrontal cortex is your mild-mannered accountant buddy, Chip, who like, you know, says, hey, man, that guy's not so bad. Maybe you shouldn't punch him, right? So one it's night- the guy in miss- office space who wants a stapler. <laughs> that's that's I right, mean, exactly. You, you told me I can keep my stapler and I still haven't got my stapler. 
But one night of missed sleep and that guy doesn't get invited to the party, right? So he's disconnected. So now we find if people are chronically sleep deprived, they have a 60% greater arrest, uh, response to negative or angry stimuli from their amygdala. Mm. Um, so you've, you've missed sleep. You've now got 60% more bah, when people do something that makes you mad and Chip isn't there to tell you to calm the heck down, right? So mm. eight hours of sleep is really important so that all of the checks and balances in your brain are working properly. Uh, the second one is 30 to 45 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. <laughs> okay, he I can still do the last. The beach. We I can still do the last. How far got the he last. lives from the beach? We can't do it. Got well, it. if you just walk to the beach, you'll be good. You'll have it covered for a couple of months. Nice. What about like driving to LA and back? Did that did that get me any cardio? <laughs> the, no? Well, it depends. If if you were you know exercising your arm tipping back the monster drinks to uh keep yourself you know awake during the time maybe you got you got some forearm exercise i'll tell you, you i sweat a bit when i had stone? to pee into that jar that that takes a lot <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah the, the, the covid safe bathroom stops you won't <laughs> nice. you won't get covid from the public restroom but you might get arrested and get on a database you don't want to be on <laughs> well i was still driving so no one could uh no one could <laughs> could identify me even if they noticed anyway okay so number two Exercise isn't really, it's not because you need to get out there and be really, you know, cranking the reps uh, or it's not even about your physical health. It's important because it, um, it, it is a really, really powerful antidepressant. So in fact, it's, it's equal um, in effect to say Zoloft. So in clinical studies, they've shown mm -hmm. that you give one group Zoloft, you give one group 30 to 45 minutes cardiovascular exercise a day, and both groups will show almost identical uh, reductions in major depressive episodes. And then when you do a three-month recheck on them, the exercise group has had less recidivism back into depression than the Zoloft group. So it's sort of all the benefits of antidepressants without all the negatives. Um, that isn't to say if you're really, really depressed, you shouldn't go see a professional and take drugs if they tell you to. <laughs> it's you know, so for Exercise is not a panacea, uh, but, it, but it's a good step. If, you're, if you have a major depression, you've been struggling for a long time, you need to go get professional help and, and as quickly as you possibly can. But for those of us maybe just struggling with the everyday downers, you know, from, from the pandemic or whatnot, then this is a really powerful antidepressant. As we say, the case of the Mondays. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah ex exactly. If you're having, you know, thoughts of harming yourself, uh, going for a run isn't going to solve that. It's, it's time yes. to, to, to go get some help. Uh, but for, for an everyday happiness tune-up, it's very, very powerful. So uh, I want to just, oh, wait, you have one more, right? You have one more? Uh, two more, but go ahead. What's your... Oh, I was going to just... No, no, go ahead. Give us a two more and I'll give you my... Uh... Uh uh, the thir third one is 10 minutes of mindfulness or meditation a day. Um, and this basically mindfulness and meditation um, reduces your uh, response to negative stimuli. It also thins out the tissue in your amygdala. So now you're getting sleep. So you've got chip there to calm down the angry guy because you know we we've gotten enough sleep. You've done your cardiovascular exercise to calm down the depression. And now you're actually thinning out the tissue in your amygdala over time so that there's actually less dense tissue to light up when you get angry. So you're making physical structural changes to your brain. You can do that in as little nice. as 10 minutes a day. Um, and in the book, we go into some versions of meditation that work for me and, and some that haven't and some ways for people to kind of access that. And, um, and for Ralph and myself, I mean, we, we, obviously we tell people prayer could probably also fill that, that, that void in some ways, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, well, a lot of spiritual traditions have a contemplative tradition. I think Western religions, the contemplative tradition has gotten buried. It, it, you know, so if you think about Buddhism, you think about meditation, that connection is still solidly there. I don't know about Protestantism, but I know in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, there's actually a, a powerful 
uh, monastic contemplative and meditative um, sort of route there that you can, I don't think it's on offer on Sunday, but it's, it's there in the text if you want to dig in and find it. And I imagine there might be something similar in, in Judaism too. So you can take it sort of beyond prayer to maybe an extended or, or a deeper meditative prayer experience. Unfortunately, we've been so codified in our in our prayer that we uh, we had a whole section. The beginning of every morning prayers is supposed to be some sort of what we call heat boidadut, which means to um, you are actually supposed to go out and just meditate. And then they decided, oh, you'll probably not do it. So we'll just codify the whole thing. So you do that 20 minutes like this. And so now everybody sort of does it as all the other prayers. But yes, we definitely have meditation within our tradition. But yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the thing, right? When you're if you're trying to dole out the benefits to as many people as possible, sometimes you have to. Sometimes over time, you end up dishing out the the prescription without the medicine behind it. And so, right. if if you codify that too much and and you remove it from the sort of mind altering effects of giving your brain a break from from stimulus, then uh, people might get the prayer benefit, but not the uh, sort of mental benefits of it of it right. over time. So. Right. Reconnecting those things, I think, for people diving back into some of those deeper contemplative traditions that are that are buried in their um, whatever spiritual tradition they follow, is I think a valuable practice. So, if you are a deeply religious person, then maybe you don't do general meditation or mindfulness, but you dive deeper into um, meditation through the wrapper or filter of your religion. And that's a, a great way for people to to get into that. Sure. It's a great distinction between meditation and prayer, because I think a lot of religious folks wonder, why isn't prayer making me more peaceful, more more grateful? And I think uh, it's because often, at least for us, our, our prayers become more lists of things we're thankful for and things we want. And then, and amen, we're done, which means we're done, not, not you know, not like it should. And there's no sense of listening, right? There's, there's this... Um, there's, it's not a conversation with God. You know, it's not a waiting for an answer or waiting for your mind to really settle into the reality of what your hopes are, right? Where um, meditation is really just an openness to what is and not a yearning for what you want. Like you have to let go of a lot of your own personal biases. When you meditate, you have to let go of uh, responding to every noise or itch on your body that you have. You have to let go of uh, interruptions or where your mind goes on a tangent or in prayer, that's kind of all you do. You sit down and you might have a few things that you have read or memorized that you say, but then it's like, whatever I think now is what I'm going to pray. There's no real intentionality to a lot of our, at least in the Western world, a lot of our prayers. And so, you know, even when I approach my congregation or folks about meditating, they have this immediate assumption that I'm talking about prayer and they're like, oh yeah, I pray. Oh yeah, we do that. We we say the Lord's prayer before dinner, or we we you know we pray before bed. I'm like, yeah, this this is different. This is deeper. This is kind of add this to that, and it'll give you a whole different uh, perspective and state of being afterwards. Yeah, and I th- I think that if if prayer or meditation, whatever it is, is a a list of wants or a list of fears, because people don't only give their wants; they also get like you know, I'm waiting for the results of my cancer test. Lord, please, you know, make sure I don't have cancer, right? We, we express our fears in prayer. Uh, but I think if you take a moment to clear out the list and, and create an openness in your mind, then uh, whether you call it God or Jesus or the divine or the universe, whatever you're trying to connect with, that connection is is more possible with an with a blank slate, with, a, with an open palate. So you, it's hard right. to connect if I just keep talking, I can't connect with you and Jamie, I have to stop and listen. And so the sort of the clearing the mind and the contemplative part of meditation or prayer is opening yourself to the listening. And then 
I think whatever stories you've told yourself is, 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 is where that communication is going to come from. So if you call it Jesus or you call it God or you call it Buddha, you're giving a moment for that voice or that clarity to, to come to you. But if you, if you only do the list and you don't give the space, you're, you're not allowing, you're not allowing for a two-way communication, I think. Um, and, and that's, mm-hmm. that, that's the beauty of getting, getting calm in your brain is, you know, whether it's just with the world or with yourself, your inner demons, or with a higher power, you're, you're making space for a two-way conversation. And we, we as humans have gotten tremendously good at one-way conversation, but uh, making more room for two-way conversation, um, you know, both physically and metaphysically is, is really valuable. Um, sure. And the final practice is just a daily practice of gratitude. And that's simply just writing down three things you're grateful for one time a day, and then taking at least 10 to 30 seconds to actually feel that gratitude. I think that's one of the things that's lost in the sort of click on the Huff Post and see a list of things you should do to be happier, write down three things you're grateful for. Well, the writing of it is, is just um, a procedural thing. The feeling of it is what is going to change your life. So if, if you're saying I'm grateful for my kids, you have to conjure up that feeling of gratitude for having that that life in your care. And if you can feel that, you'll actually change your brain and and get your brain your brain out of the mode of looking for negatives and into the mode of looking to list positives and then attach meaningful emotion to it. That's an interesting addition I, I hadn't heard before about uh, the addition of the, the emotions to gratitude. Um, because gratitude sometimes becomes more of a, a, just like I said with prayer, a list of things. Like I look around the room, like uh, oxygen, food, water, whiteboard, children, microphone, uh, rather than trying to feel like on a deeper level. Go ahead, Jamie. I was just going to say, do you, um, in, in our, uh, our, our main time of year, right before the high holidays, we, we are supposed to go through this process called chuva, which is a, a process of, uh, trying to not only make yourself a better person, but asking for forgiveness, right? But one of the key things um, that the Rambam, who was one of the major um, ra- rabbis in our tradition, talked about in doing this process is actually to say it. So I like the writing down piece, but do you think there would be more, there might be something more to actually, if you're saying I'm thankful for my children, but to say it to them, do you think it would actually give more or do you think it's more important to feel it inside of yourself? Uh well, th- those I think those are both wildly important, and I think they do different things. So the feeling it is what's going to make the biggest change neurologically for you and training your brain to pattern your world for the positive such that um, when you start writing your stories, you have more positive bits of information on active recall because your brain's trained to look for those. Now, the saying it out loud piece is sort of a, a process. Uh, well, if you're saying it out loud just to yourself, then that's just reinforcing the process. But to say it out loud to your kids is a different thing. I have a chapter of the book called the the core four family style, where I talk about Mm -hmm. um, being able to give happiness to your family. Um, And so because happiness is more formulaic than we think, it it really is better living through chemistry. All of these, you know, core four habits basically are going to dump in dopamine, oxytocin into your brain to create the right neurochemical environment for you to have positive emotions and feel happiness. Now you can teach your kids to do that. And part of that is by mirroring or modeling gratitude. So we have a daily gratitude practice in our family. Our kids are really young. So we don't, we've actually just now with our seven-year-olds sort of started titling it gratitude, but before it was just, you know, favorite parts and appreciates. So I'm list his favorite at dinner. I'm list his favorite parts of the day. So he's now patterning his world for the positive. But before COVID, and he's had some struggles as everybody has, you know, um, with, with COVID, but before COVID by and large, if you asked him how his day was, it was awesome. Right. COVID. And, <laughs> <laughs> is that in your book? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about that, and that that'll be in the uh, unabridged uh, with the deleted section. Um, but uh, and and uh, so he he lists the, the the positive parts of his day at dinner, and that helps him pattern the world for the positive. And then he um, has to appreciate the other people at the table. So say something appreciate about mom and sister and dad for the day, and then we do the same for him. So he's hearing our gratitude uh, for him made made manifest, and he can internalize that, and then he's going to then start to compile his stories about who he is with those bits of information, because we also feed them the bad bits of information. Why do you always do that? You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're always so mean to your sister, right? So we are really, really good as parents at feeding our kids bad bits of information to compile their, their stories from. And so gratitude sort of helps to offset that helps to give them uh, verbal gratitude helps to give them positive bits of information to compile their stories from, which will serve them later in life. I don't have anything I'm grateful for. Do you get, can you guys give me yours? Maybe. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful I'm, for you, Ralph. I'm over four here at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll start from the core zero and work your way up, Ralph. <laughs> Listen, you got to start somewhere. I, think, I should say too, I've used that term bits of information that that's from neurologically speaking, as you sit here talking, you're getting about 11 million bits of information bombarding your senses right now. Some of them are duplicates, right? You're, you, you could both you be. think so highly of yourself. 11 million? Come on. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm giving them all to you. It's all my mojo and juju. 11 million coming at you. Oof, you are I'm giving me the winky already. eye a lot. That's, uh, that, if, if I was single, that would be my new bar opener. <laughs> Walk up. Nice. I got 11 million bits of information for you. <laughs> Nice. I thought you'd, uh, you'd go the other way. You're giving me a mel- I'm getting 11 million bits of information from you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but yeah, a lot of it's duplicates, but we have to heavily filter. You can imagine, uh, you know, uh, your average dictionary has, you know, about a million letters in it. So if I threw 11 dictionaries worth of, of letters at you right now, you'd be pretty overwhelmed. Or if you tried to look up at the, at the stars and try to pick out a few out of the overwhelming amount of stars, it would just, we would just be this sort of quivering mass of indecision if we, if we couldn't heavily parse this. So depending on the neuroscience study you read, it's anywhere from 40 bits to 60 bits that you can actually, your conscious mind can process. So you're filtering out of uh, 11 million bits of information, you're filtering out an infinitesimally small amount of that information to compile your stories from. Now, if you add to that your brain's preset for making those the worst possible bits, you can sort of see how we spiral into negativity. And so a lot of these things, you know, daily gratitude practice, rewriting your story is just sort of peppering your brain with these more positive bits of information uh, to work with. Interesting. Um, So the last question that I have is, you know, the majority of the book is largely a a personal journey of rewriting stories, but it seems like this has an implication for, for cultural stories that we tell ourselves on a larger level. And a lot of it, it seems we've here in America have been going through for the past uh, for the extent of the year. Um, how, how do you, you know, where do you see terrible stories, uh, in our culture and how, and, and how, how can we help to, uh, have a cultural influence on rewriting those stories? Yeah. I think when it comes to cultural influence, it's being intentional about the stories we sort of ingest and take in and the stories we let our kids take in. And then the stories we put back out there in the world, you're both storytellers. So you have an intentional moment of deciding what story you're going to share with your you know flock or congregation that you know that particular um, weekend, and so you can be really intentional about crafting a narrative for a small group of people. But 
Yeah. Um, broadly, you know, I, I mean, my work as a success coach, I, I tend to work with people who uh, are really successful, really pretty high functioning, fun people, adventurers who have lost their way, you know, similar to I have, they've sort of, um, they've just gotten mired down and bogged down and they don't feel good at what they used to feel good at, or they're not able to see a clear direction um, forward. And part of the process of helping them see that for themselves is clearing out some of these bad stories. So mm. um, if, for example, I talk about in the book, uh, all the movies and, and books that have sort of the rich guy as the bad guy and the guy with a big heart and a broken wallet as the, the savior and the good guy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I see with my clients, and I had this problem myself early on in my real estate career, is you identify uh, sort of rich people as being bad or negative. And you identify sort of poor people as being, um, you know, inherently you know, good or uh, virtuous. Neither of which is true. People are just people, and wealth is an amplifier, right? So if they're sort of generally a virtuous person, they're going to be a much more virtuous person with a bunch of money behind them to do good work. And if they yeah, were yeah. generally a schmuck, they're going to be a bigger schmuck when they get a bunch of money behind them, right? Well so put. When, when we, <laughs> I threw schmuck it, in there for you, the Jamie. Was the schmuck that you like? I, like I, I wasn't I just, listening think, until you said schmuck. I think everything about that was perfect. Keep going, Rich. <laughs> um, but so you, I work with um, entrepreneurs a lot in rewriting those stories around money so they can achieve their goals. Because if you think rich people are bad people, then you're not going to go down the process of making yourself wealthy because then you'd have to compromise your morals. Um, and so one of the processes we do are these sort of um, looking at for and doing a deep dive into somebody you think is wealthy and is a really good person and does good work to rewrite those stories. Um, broadly, I think our country is at an inflection point, suffering from a lot of um, negative political stories. And I think um, regardless of which end of the spectrum you find yourself on, it's valuable to apply the same filters you might apply to a personal story to uh a cultural or political story. You know, politicians are consummate storytellers. Their jobs are predicated on their ability to, to tell a good story and for us to believe them and, and believe based on that story that they're our guy or girl that we want to move forward and, and represent us. So if someone's telling you a story, you know, I just a- apply those same filters. Is, is this story positive? Is this story serving me? Is this taking me or the country where I want to go? Is this the best version of the story I can write? And if you find some no's in there, then you have to ask yourself, why are they telling me a story that's not good? And then you make your own decisions about what to do based on that. So sort of regardless of your political leanings, uh, applying a strong question uh, question asking approach and filter to the political stories, because these are not, these stories are not empirically true. And they're also not by accident. Every single story you're you're taking in is intentional and it's, it's meant to have you do say or feel a certain thing. And if you don't want to do, say, or feel those things, then uh, you got to look for a better story or someone who's telling a better story. So I think if people apply, the, apply those filters to the divides we're feeling in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can start to come together around what, what, is, what is America? Can we, can we agree on that? What's the best version of this? What are, what, what are, what's the best story we can write? And what's the best ending or best outcome we can create together? Mm-hmm. Um, if we start to approach it and apply that way, we can maybe start to get out of our sort of tribal camps. These stories have pushed us into our tribal camps really, really well. And if we um, sort of take our, our story writing power back from the powers that be and put it in our hands and say, well, what, what do we, the people, want to write as our story for this country? Um, then I think we can s- sort of heal these divides and maybe Thanksgiving and Christmas will be a little less contentious next time for folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that, that seems like the big crux of it all, though, is that um, it takes a consciousness and a vulnerability, two things that you 
had to enter into when you when you realized your bad story with your mother. But culturally, we don't have a, a, a greater sense of consciousness or vulnerability. Um, you know, so it's acknowledging that the things we've been doing our whole life may be hurtful for other folks. And, and I think people have a, you know, they either settle that that's the, that's the story that will always be. And, or they ignore that other people are actually hurt by their actions, you know, things like the Me Too movement, um, or all the, the pervasive um, systemic racism, they just say, Oh, that's the way it always is, or no, nah, they, you know, they're not really hurt by it. Those are people just settling for bad stories, it seems, in the context of your book. There are people who say that's the way it always is, and it's not true. Um, and I think people are more interested in settling on it being that way than being vulnerable and conscious to doing the work of creating a better story that benefits, um, you know, the entire culture and not just their narrow perspective and story. Um, do you find that to be true? What do you think about that, Jamie? You know, it's interesting. I think what you were saying, is, uh, both of you were saying is akin to one idea that I picked out of this. When we were talking about, you know, how to sort of process negative information, there's an idea in um, Judaism called Dan Lakaf Skut, which means what I'm always supposed to do, there are two things I'm supposed to do, or at least I try to do every day, which is I try to make sure that when I look at someone else, I assume the best of what they're doing, Right. And it's and it and it's it's like so easy to say, right? I'm just going to assume everyone's doing the best thing that they could possibly do. Um, but the other thing is that I need to look at every single person as if they're what's called betzelam elokim, which means that they're actually made in God's image, right? And if I can, if I sit down and I think about those two ideas when I'm driving my car, which was a good example you used, Rich, in your book of feeling frustration, which is probably the best place for me to feel frustration. If I could think about every person as if they were my friend right? Or, or made in God's image, right? Like this person in front of me is actually somebody who's of ultimate value, not just a thing that's in my way. I need to get to work or whatever, right? If I can think about that person as being of ultimate value, then I'm definitely shifting my sort of mental way of looking at the world and hopefully looking at it with much more from a positive perspective than from, you know, in, incorporating negative negativity. And a lot of this is just me looking or a person looking at the world in a specific way with a specific lens. What do you think, Rich? Yeah. And I, I mean, extending that grace to the people around us um, is easier in good times and harder in bad times. Um, and right now, all of us, we sort of have that assumption I talked about before that our life is going to be sort of an up and to the right hockey stick linear progression to like killing it. Right. And then a global pandemic comes along and people are like, Whoa, what do you, what do you mean? I, I don't get to just keep killing it. Right. Like everybody's worldview just, just got rocked. And so when people get yeah. pushed closer to the edge, um, that, and, and they're more fearful, uh, then they're, they're going to be less likely to extend that grace. And, and I think a lot of our political, um, stories and cultural stories right now are sort of meant to jangle that fear nerve, um, and, 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 and keep people sort of, uh, having those strong reactions to each other, because if, if we can keep having our strong reactions to each other, one side or the other can, can get our, our vote. Right. You know, if we, if we can keep right. that. And so uh, when it comes to looking at, I think Ralph was saying, you know, are people just sort of exercising, working out of these bad stories that my actions don't harm others or whatever. I think it's important whenever, when you write a book or you come up with your own theory, you can get sort of trapped into the idea of ubiquitously applying your theory to everything, even, even to places where it doesn't belong or when it's a little inadequate to, to, to describe sure. things. And I think sure. 
um, the, the bad story model um, is useful on the personal level. And when we get to these, these sort of cultural, political levels, um, there needs to be more nuance uh, to it that goes a, a little bit beyond the theory in that those people might just be acting out of a bad story, but they're, they're also acting out of a, a ton of um, mental, psychological, and, and metaphysical pressure right now. And sure. so for them... Sure. To, to say you should just rewrite your story that your actions uh, affect other people, which I think w- would be great. I think we've seen uh, uh, a, a lot of people disregarding how their actions you know, affect other people. The problem is uh, that person would then have to wade into the muck and mire of grappling with these problems that none of us has a good answer to. Mm-hmm. N- none of us has a good answer to how to keep the economy going and keep people from dying. And these are this is hedonic calculus. This is beyond... Everybody has to is just trying to figure this thing out and do their best. Some of us have a good idea of what we think the better answers are, and it's clear that there are some not as good answers. But if someone's operating from this this story that says I'm just going to live my life as normal, I'm not going to engage with this, and and you view them as having a filter that says their actions don't affect other people, that that might be the outcome, but that might not be the story. The story might be, I am just so freaked out. This is just Mm -hmm. so surreal. This is all just so overwhelming that I can't engage with it. And so that autopilot of the brain kicks in and puts up the protective filters. And the protective filters say, I'm just doing me, right? Right. I'm just going to do me. I'm going to take care of me. And that's all I can handle right now, Right. right? Some people in a crisis step up and lead and take care of a lot of others. And other people in a crisis need to step down and turtle up and just take care of them and their family. And that's not a judgment statement. That's just how it is. So I think um, in order for people to start to engage again with a type of dialogue that says my actions affect other people and I need to take that into account on a moment by moment, day by day basis, we need a pressure release valve. We need to, we need to take the pressure off these people somehow. I don't have an answer to how we do that yet. Maybe, Sure. Maybe vaccination. This and podcast. <laughs> That's this right. <laughs> Everyone should listen to it. <laughs> well, certainly, Worldwide. I think conversations like this help. You know. Yes. So it was interesting when I was when I was first living in Israel. We were we were under a lot of pressure here too. I mean, there was a time when when we had a lot more terror attacks. And I remember one of the best ways somebody put it to me because I, you know, there was a lot of tension and there's a, always a lot of tension with Israelis, right? You, you, people will yell at you and, and give you a hard time at the drop of a dime, right? Even though we don't <laughs> use dimes. But the but um, I said to this one guy, you know, I was I was talking to somebody and he yelled at me and just screamed at me. Why did he do that? And he said it's really hard not to yell when someone's standing on your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I, I, you know what? I understand that there's a lot of things going on for a lot of people. So I think what you said is pretty spot on, Rich. Like some people have to, you know, we all have to deal with this in some way or another. And sometimes it's harder than others. And I think we're sitting in a time when um, it's going to be hard for hopefully not that much longer, but it's it there. Yeah. And I think I, I, like anyone, I have a deep desire for things to be better and for behaviors to be better. But I also, you know, I know that there's not there's not been a time in my lifetime that people are under more mental, physical, emotional, metaphysical pressure. And so uh, for those of us inclined to speak or inclined to lead, I think um, I think the moment calls for a level of magnanimousness that is beyond our basic nature. <laughs> like my basic nature might be to vehemently react to someone who's doing something that I think is a threat to my family or it's going to make my family stay in quarantine longer or but I think the, the moment demands a, a greater a greater level of of calm and, uh, and grace if we're going to get through this and become one community again on, on the other side, whatever whatever that looks like. And people, the transition is going to be hard too. I, I remember some point engaging with the concept of um, 
say your brother or someone has a significant other you don't like, or someone you, you think this relationship's going to end in divorce, then your knee-jerk reaction is to express an opinion about that partner or, you know, or, or tell them they should be taken care of better. Like confirmation bias. Like you're just looking yeah, for all those things that confirm your bad story. Yeah. And, and that, but the idea is that on the other side of this, if it really goes to the worst case scenario that you think it's going to go, that person, your brother, your sister, they end in divorce, they're going to need you. They're going to need that relationship. They're going to need that support. And if you squander your sort of brotherly capital on bad talking the problem, you're right. not going to have any brotherly capital to spend on solving the problem. So I think we're, we're at a point now where nothing short of a vaccine is probably going to work our way out of this. So we might want to keep our powder dry and, and, and be doing the hard work of how do we expend our capital on making us one community again, such that next time we face a major sort of global rocking to the system, we're, we're better able to lead. We're better have some skills we didn't have before. Um, Cause I think for me, I have to move past the frustration of the moment. Now I'm not going to be able, those problems are unsolvable. The, the schisms right. and the chasms have been, are they're there. And so uh, let's get the pressure, let's get the lid off, and then let's, let's work together with people who don't think like us to figure out how we can do this better the, the next time and not, not fight against each other. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking time, Rich, to do the podcast and more importantly, just the work you're doing um, to really help people develop a new sense of how they are in the world and who they are and their importance and value. That's just overwhelmingly positive. Um, and lastly, I just really, you know, love and appreciate you as a friend and miss hanging out for sure during this time. So it was nice to do this with you and get some insight. And um, I'm sure I think I'm- it was great meeting you, Rich. That's, you know, it's been really nice. I hope we can become, you know, maybe someday. Absolutely. It was a wonderful conversation. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I, I love conversations like this and uh, we should we should do a, a screen share and watch Surfwise, and then we'll, we'll talk nah, about the right. religious implications nah, of that. Nah, <laughs> or, or Groundhog Day. That, that never hurts, right? <laughs> the right. book is titled Change Your Story, Change Your Life, The Field Guide to Rewrite Your Stories, Create Happiness, and Set Yourself Free. It's by Rich Curtis. Make sure you search uh, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, and Rich Curtis on Amazon, or else you'll get some uh, Jungian psychology books and such, but um, it's available in Kindle paperback and audio version read by Rich on Amazon. Rich, is there anywhere else you want, um, if people want to follow up with you or engage with you on social media or online, is there any other places you want to recommend? Uh, yeah, they can go to the my main site, richcurtis.com. Uh, it's R-I-C-H-C-U-R-T-I-S.com, or they can check me out on uh, Instagram or Facebook at Rich Curtis Guide. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks so much, buddy. Great having you. Great seeing you for a bit. We really appreciate nice you doing this. Nice to meet you, Rich. Thanks, Hope guys. Have you again another time. Yeah, that was a wonderful conversation. Enjoy your evening over there, Jamie. Good to see you, Ralph. Enjoy your day, Rich. Take care. Bye-bye.